0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more that's seafoamworks.com to learn more hey i just sat down with the owners and operators of maui nui venison they're on a mission to balance axis deer populations on maui
1: Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal.
0: If you play with your outdoor cat and feed that cat more meat, it is less likely to kill and far less likely to bring home its kill to you. A new study titled Provision of High Meat Content Food and Object Play Reduce Predation of Wild Animals by Domestic Cats. Felis Catus from the journal Current Biology aimed at making, quote, positive contributions to cat husbandry, which sounds like something you would find in the bowels of the internet, but I assure you is not that person who wears a cat sweater every day of the year getting hitched. Is she cleaning the cat with her tongue? This is getting weird. So put those claws away. (coughs) This is real meaningful science in a real scientific journal, which had to be developed because people can't stand the thought of keeping their pee-on-everything-murderous house cat in the house. This study found that households where high-meat-protein, grain-free food and households where 5 to 10 minutes of daily object play recorded decreases of 36% and 25% respectively in numbers of animals captured and brought home by cats. So let's recap all we've learned on Cal's Week in Review about outdoor cats. Outdoor cats kill over 3 billion birds a year, over 5 billion small mammals and reptiles a year, and In order for people to take a little responsibility, right? That word that your folks or your friend or spouse used when you wanted the cat, you have to feed it, you have to pick up after it. That speech, you recall that? All you have to do to take responsibility for that cat is keep it inside. Or, slightly less effective, put an annoying, unattractive collar on the cat. Or, as of now, change the cat's diet and pay the cat a little more attention. It just occurred to me this talk is kind of similar to another talk a lot of kids get when they get to a certain age. You know, the most effective way to avoid all of these unwanted or unplanned circumstances is abstinence. And I'm sure, just like the people who give that speech in high schools, feel as I do that the people I'm talking to, the outdoor cat people in this circumstance, won't even. Try. Nope. This week, we've got listener emails, cicadas, old teeth, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is brought to you by the fine folks at Steel Power Equipment. If you are thinking about getting into a clean, quiet, lightweight, use inside or outside of your house battery powered chainsaw, make it a steel. You can throw that tight little package inside your vehicle under the seat. And no one will know you are equipped to handle the unforeseen fun killer of a downed tree in the middle of the road, or even a bison that needs to be parted up, because they'll never smell it down there. They'll just be impressed when you whip it out and use it. The smell's gone for good. It's that easy. My week has been interesting. We got into some perch, big ones, and pretty consistent for once. Old musky Chet signs West, and I headed out at 5 a.m., 26 below zero to conquer the mighty perch we brought enough equipment along to make the uninitiated think that we had somehow funded our own polar expedition i'm happy to report that i located and caught the first perch of the day and sad to report that it was my last i just watched as everyone else yanked the fish out after that fortunately for me old musky Chet has a serious fish allergy so by taking his fish i actually got to save a life am i a hero I really can't say, but yes. The other thing that has been happening is more bad bills from here in the state of Montana. Keep in mind, friends and neighbors, this is the opinion section of the podcast. This legislative session, we have ways to privatize wildlife, ways to monetize wildlife, ways to disenfranchise the public hunter, ways to relegate our fish and game to an agency that could have the power to maybe suggest ways of managing wildlife, but not implement it and ways to flat-out get rid of public land. If you are familiar with the reproductive theory of predator swamping, where all the little baby deer or elk hit the ground at the same time, so when they're at their weakest and most vulnerable, old Mr. Grizz or Mr. Black Bear and Mr. Wolf can only gobble up so many before the rest are able to really turn those wobbly knees into lightning. Or, if you're more of an acorn or acorn specialist, Those tree nuts don't drop one at a time, they drop en masse, so at least a few make it past the whitetail and squirrel into the ground. I feel like this is what is happening right now in the state of Montana. It's the legislature's way of swamping all of us folks who want and have the right to say in how our collective wildlife is managed. Go to montanafreepress.org forward slash capital tracker which is something I found the other day, which helps in the searching of new bills. Or, there is the old standby, MontanaLEG.gov, and take a look at this list. Hot off the press, LC2343 would create additional landowner elk tags and a five-bonus-point incentive to landowner-sponsored cow hunters, HB 320, an act prohibiting the future sales of land granted to the state, HB 417, an act prohibiting the limiting of tags in areas where elk are over objective. Of course, the newly amended HB 143, which now states that 40% of non resident combination tags can get the preferential treatment for only an additional $300. SB 153, which would put the State Parks Board in charge of wildlife management areas and fishing access sites. If anyone wants to get into these a little deeper, Please go to the aforementioned sites, read up and write in to ASKCAL at the TheMeatEater.com and remember that these are undoubtedly, undubitably similar to proposed legislation in your home state. If you want to be a conservationist, or if you own that shirt that says hunting is conservation, this is a big, big part of it. Should be a disclaimer that goes along with that shirt when you purchase it. Moving on to the update section those darn kids, Boise State students admitted to dumping all those tasty birds in the dumpster behind the Fred Meyer in Garden City, Idaho. And this is what I have to say to you. (sharp) Quackitas. Cut duck breast fillets into pieces about the size of your finger, roll them in flour with salt, pepper, and chili powder. Flash fry them at medium-high temp in oil or fat. Do not overcook. Drain. Then pile that into some corn or flour tortillas with whatever fajita mixings you like. You'll be coming back for thirds. That's from George, and if a couple of college kids can't get that one right, you need to get a job in a kitchen. Thanks for writing in, George. Next up, you remember the Rome, New York fellow with the quote, makeshift grill that was accused of possibly cooking a domestic dog? Well, things are looking good for him. Cornell University, according to New York Utica 2, says it is 98% certain the meat is not domestic dog, but he's not out of the rough yet. Oh, don't bark at me for that one. Put those hackles down. If it is found to be a coyote, the case will be turned over to the State Department of Environmental Conservation. If it's determined to be a domestic animal... Charges could be issued under agriculture and markets animal cruelty laws. In either case, I've determined this person will have the privilege of cooking possibly the most expensive meat in all of New York State. Coyote hunting season is open in New York until March 28th. I called New York Region 6 environmental law enforcement and they assured me that as long as the coyote was legally harvested, it is perfectly legal to cook and eat a coyote. In fact, the conservation officer I spoke with mentioned seeing a TV show filmed in New York where they ate a coyote. So, is this a case of discrimination? Another situation where those darn TV hosts get, uh, special privilege? Or did this fella eat a dog? We'll stay on top of this one. If anyone knows this backyard griller in Rome, New York, let me know. Would love to hear his side of the story. I'm sure it's very short. Brett writes in, A representative in my state of Oregon has introduced an extremely broad and short bill targeting the sale of fur in Oregon. Most relevant to our state's outdoor economy is that it would essentially ban the sale of flies and fly tying supplies that would include fur. Less people would have access to fishing, therefore less money would go towards fishing licenses and conservation in this state. There is already a leather and taxidermy exemption, yet nothing related to the other myriad uses of fur. The bill is light on exemptions and broad in its target. Please ask folks to write and call Representative Rob Noss and let him know that this bill is a bad idea. After reading the bill in question, Oregon House Bill 2676, it states that businesses such as pawn shops and secondhand stores selling used fur and hides are exempt, as well as used fur and hides with the intended purpose of traditional use specifically for tribal members. So, if it were to pass, this bill seems impossible to enforce. I think you will still be able to get your fly tying materials, but your local fly shop may just need to add some additional used equipment to qualify as a second-hand shop. With a lot of the bum fly fishermen I know, a pawn shop version of a fly shop might actually be a really smart business model anyway.
1: What are they biting on? What? What are they biting on? Louder!
0: Aside from the fact that Oregon history has basically been that of fur trapping, it is important to note that the Oregon legislature temporarily prohibited beaver trapping from 1899 until 1919 enacted its first conservation measures in 1920 and established a relocation program in 1932. Another moratorium was placed on public beaver trapping from 1937 until 1951. It's important to note that that's public beaver trapping, meaning that, no matter when or where we ban trapping, there's still a lot of trapping that goes on. All of this to say that beavers are very managed in the state of Oregon and have been for a long time. The fact that leather goods are exempt from this proposed legislation really makes you wonder who Representative Noss is trying to appease with this one. Fur is hairy leather. Or you could say, leather is hairless fur. Either way, dead is dead and waste is waste. I'll guarantee the animal is far beyond caring if it gets turned into a boot or a toasty scarf, so let's use what we can. If you would like to weigh in on this issue, go to OregonLegislature.gov and contact your elected official. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, You know, regularly. People everywhere rely on Seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
1: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co.
0: Use the code MEATEATER. Next up, hot ice. The Cal's Week in Review ice fishing report. Massachusetts ice angler hauled out a 15-pound, 8-ounce brown trout, nearly 33 inches long, out of Stockbridge Bowl Lake. The state record is 19 pounds, 10 ounces. A New York ice angler hauled out a 45 and three-quarter-inch, 24.7-pound tiger muskie on Otisco Lake, according to For the Win. This tiger muskie is three pounds shy of the ice fishing tiger muskie world record, which coincidentally came from Otisco Lake back in 2009. Like the same place is what I'm saying. That fish weighed in at 27 pounds five ounces. A tiger muskie is a cross between a muscalunge and a northern pike. Tiger muskie are commonly stocked into lakes as a form of population control. They prefer soft-finned fish like suckers, but will eat what's available, and being a hybrid, they don't typically reproduce. Both of these anglers used tip-ups, which is the trapping equivalent of fishing. In eastern Montana, generally speaking, consult your regulations, An angler can have six tip-ups, which would make for a trap line. Unmanned baited lines are set below the ice. When a fish pulls the line, it trips the flag, which signals the ice angler. I have come to realize that in the ice fishing world, there are a lot of ways to leave lines unattended and call it fishing. I, for the record, call it fun. Moving on. Scientists with the Voyager's Wolf Project in Minnesota have been studying the summer hunting behavior of gray wolves, and in the process have discovered some startling shortcomings of beavers. Most of what we know about wolves is from what we see in the winter. They hunt in packs, they chase their prey, and they concentrate mostly on big animals like full-grown deer and moose. But in the summer, wolf packs become less concentrated and harder to track. Using cameras, analysis of kill sites, and data from geolocation tags to find out more, they discovered that in the summer, wolves become solo ambush hunters. Instead of chasing down prey in a group, many of them park themselves very close to beaver dams, making sure they're downwind, and wait for an unlucky beaver to waddle by. To illustrate how vulnerable to ambush hunting beavers are, the scientists set up a life-sized, photorealistic cardboard cutout of a wolf a few feet away from an entrance to a beaver dam. The resulting video is priceless. The cardboard cutout may as well be a photo of a ball of mud for all the attention the beavers pay to it. Yep. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. Right in front of the image of the wolf, the beavers chew tree trunks apart, drag branches back to the dam. They do not care. It almost seems like the beavers know the wolf photo is there, and they're just trolling the scientists. They bump into the decoy, sniff all around it, drag branches by it. They knock the decoy askew in the process. According to the video, these are just busy beavers, not wary rodents. Now, to be fair, I think we'd need to see the same experiment done with a three-dimensional wolf decoy. The only thing I could strictly conclude from this experiment is that beavers can't translate a two-dimensional image. Still, this experiment establishes some interesting ideas. First, we hadn't confirmed that wolves behave this way in warmer months. Second, we understand better how beavers must rely on smell and hearing over sight. And, even with the sight limitation, there are plenty of beavers in wolf country so they must hold their own against the big bad wolf. Moving on. Coming this spring to the eastern United States, cicadas, those insects that look like a cross between a grasshopper and a dragonfly, which are mostly known for their extremely loud buzzing. For you listeners who have never heard a cicada, they sound a bit like a rattlesnake and a wind-up kitchen timer going off. To those who have heard the noise, They sound like summer. The cicadas set to emerge this spring have developed a mathematical survival strategy. They have spent 17 years underground as nymphs and will emerge all together in huge numbers, coming to maturity and reproducing furiously for several weeks before dying off again. That number 17 is not an accident. There are no broods of cicadas who emerge every 16 or 18 years. 17 is a prime number meaning that you can only divide it evenly by one and itself. And that means that predators who reproduce in shorter cycles won't be able to synchronize effectively with the cicada boom. If a cicada brood came out every 18 years, for example, then all the predators on cycles of 2 years, 3 years, 6 years, and 9 years would all be ready to eat them. But every 17 years, only some of these predators will be ready. A completely different group of predators from last boom. And so, none of them are able to adapt to making cicadas a staple of their diet. You could think of this as a smart way that cicada hordes evolved using math. The other way to think about it is, again, predator swamping. Overwhelming volume. No matter how many of these cicadas predators are able to eat, plenty will be able to survive. Lots of animals use this strategy. Japanese millipedes, for example, emerge on eight-year cycles in such huge waves that they have brought the country's train system to a halt several times. That's a lot of millipedes. Like, enough to stop a train. Ah! Cicadas are sometimes mistakenly identified as locusts, an entirely separate kind of insect that also swarms in huge numbers. Although cicadas are less voracious eaters than locusts, If you have big gardening plans for this spring, it might be good to hold off until later in June, once the mature cicadas have died and the new brood of nymphs are headed back underground for another 17 years. Cicada cycles are so well established in the U.S. that distinct broods have been tracked since the 1890s, and this summer's boom will be from Brood 10, also known as the Great Eastern Brood. We'll call it the GEB. Yeah, you know me. BOO! The GEB is the biggest both by numbers and geographical distribution. The numbers are going to be big, like 1 billion insects per square mile big. And their mating call of a male cicada can reach 100 decibels, as loud as a motorcycle, or, for you cows we can review superfans, as loud as a Kenyan dendrohyrax. Remember that little critter? So, to my friends from New York to Georgia, from Delaware to Michigan, it might be a good idea to invest now in some quality earplugs. While everyone else will be scratching their head wondering what all the racket is, you'll be secure in the knowledge that you're experiencing the full flower of brood ten. Enjoy it while you can. They won't be back until 2038. Moving on to the anthropology desk. Way back in 1911, Several ancient teeth were found in the cave of St. Brilade on Jersey, a small island in the English Channel near France. This has nothing to do with the Sopranos. Archaeologists knew that the St. Brilade cave had been occupied by Neanderthals starting as long as 250,000 years ago, but these teeth were dated to 48,000 years ago, just a few thousand years before Neanderthals completely vanished from Europe. Trying to understand this final phase of Neanderthal history, a team of scientists from the UK and Germany took new, more powerful scans of the teeth and discovered that they had an extremely unusual structure. The dimensions of the roots and crowns were consistent with Neanderthal teeth, but their necks were shaped like the teeth of modern humans, and they lacked the transverse crest, or transverse colgate. No, transverse crest typical of Neanderthal teeth. From this combination of anatomical characteristics, the team concluded that these teeth came from individuals who are neither fully Neanderthal nor fully Homo sapiens, but rather a hybrid of the two. This is very exciting, because even though we can tell from analyzing our genome that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbred, very little physical evidence has been found that shows the anatomical results of that interbreeding. A quick bit of evolutionary history, the two branches of human ancestors that would become Neanderthals and Homo sapiens diverged about 800,000 years ago. For a long time, anthropologists believed that interbreeding between the two populations would be impossible because the genetic makeup had become too distinct. And that was the majority opinion until about 10 years ago. At that point, the entire Neanderthal genome had been sequenced, and distinct Neanderthal genetic markers were identified. Lo and behold, if you've ever done one of those genetic tests, you probably have picked up on the news that those markers turned up in the DNA of modern humans. However... It is one thing to say, this DNA signature proves that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens fooled around way back when, and it's an entirely different thing to say, this here tooth that I hold in my hand is shaped this way because it came from a human-Neanderthal hybrid. Physical evidence. Although there have been some other physical evidence of hybrids, Teeth discovered in present-day Israel, a jawbone fragment in Siberia, the St. Berlade teeth of Jersey, proved that Homo sapiens were interbreeding with Neanderthals much later than previously thought, and much further west. Until now, the accepted story about how Neanderthals went extinct has been, Homo sapiens showed up and outcompeted them, or even intentionally killed them off but these newly analyzed teeth are leading some anthropologists to wonder whether Neanderthals didn't really go extinct at all, but rather intermingled with Homo sapiens until the two populations merged. Fun fact about this one. The teeth came from a private collection, as in someone had them squirreled away, and they were analyzed now because that someone is dead. Some of us are going to leave behind junk, maybe, if we're lucky, something of value and some of us are going to leave behind evidence of Neanderthal homo sapien offspring from 45,000 or more years ago. Kind of makes you inch those baseball cards closer to the curb, doesn't it? That's all I've got for you this week. So much to talk about and not enough time. Thanks so much for listening. And as per usual, let me know what is happening in your neck of the woods by writing in to ASKCAL, that's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. If you're loving what you're hearing, tell a friend or two. I'll talk to you next week. at seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks, Sent right to your door, visit MauiNuiVenison.com, that's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.